Hi, it's Mike Crawford. Welcome to the Young Jerks Podcast. Tonight we have a special interview with the Mayor of Cambridge, Mark McGovern. We hit a lot of topics, including the Mayor recently returning campaign contributions. We also discuss the possible future of safe consumption sites, possibly in the city of Cambridge. And of course, we do get into economic empowerment for cannabis in the city of Cambridge, an update on that, as well as discussion on housing and development. We also get into the Boston Straight Pride Cop Riot this last weekend. And the mayor of Cambridge also gives us an update on why Cambridge Carnival has been canceled for this year. That and a lot more coming up with the mayor of Cambridge, Mark McGovern. Stick around. We'll be right back. I guess I, we should just start with uh, the first, uh, that story from Sophia Bell. She wrote a story yep. about a contribution, campaign contribution. Yep. yep. And you responded on our Facebook page that you're going to send the money back. So I think uh, you should just kind of give us uh, yep. information on, on on that to start. Sure. sure. So um, back in uh, 2018 and 2019, I was doing um, some fundraising. And uh, someone who I am acquainted with um, had, you know, helped me a little bit. And I got these, I got in 2018, I got two $1,000 checks. And in 2019, two $1,000 checks from the Stubblefield family. Now, I knew that they were, um, I knew that they were involved in commercial real estate. Uh, What I didn't know was that they had also contributed this money to, uh, keep Massachusetts safe, which was the the, the organization that was uh, against Question Three, which would which was protecting transgender rights. Um, and I'm really I'm I really am appreciative of uh, I, I know Sophia Bell, um, you know, men didn't want to call me out, um, you know, for for doing something wrong, but I actually really appreciate her doing that because um, you know I didn't know that that that. This, that these folks had done that, and I certainly, um, I immediately um, responded to Ms. Bell and told her that, um, you know, I didn't know uh, that this had happened and that I was going to send the money back. Um, I've since decided that instead of sending the money back, um, I'm going to just donate the $4,000 to Mass Equality. Um, why not put it to good use um, instead of sending it back? So I'm going to, you know, send it to a, an organization that, support LGBTQ plus rights, as I do, um, and put that money to, be, to, to better use rather than just sending it back. You know, this is something, you know, I know, I mean, this is something that happens, right? Bernie Sanders has returned money that he put into his campaign and found out later that it was from organizations he didn't believe in. Barack Obama has done it. Maura Healy, Elizabeth Warren, every elected official gets money at some point and then finds out information later that they didn't know. And the question then becomes, what do they do? Do they make excuses and keep the money, which I think the current president is like does, right? Man of no integrity. Or do they stand up and say, oh my goodness, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. I'm going to make amends, and I'm going to make it right. And that's what I did. So I am very appreciative that Ms. Bell pointed this out. If I had known this ahead of time, I would not have accepted the money. This is not uncommon. This is not, you know, some grand conspiracy. Um, you know, I found out information later that that is really troubling to me, does not stand for what I believe in or what my community believes in, and um, I don't want their money. And so I'm doing something about it. Um, so, you know, again, I... I uh, you know, I, I apologize for um, this happening. You know, um, you know it wasn't intentional, um, and I'm trying to make it right. And you know, we all make mistakes, right? And I, you know, and um, you know, maybe I should have dug a little deeper uh, into these folks, but um, I didn't think I had reason to. And I'm just grateful that it was pointed out to me, and that I can, uh, you know, make amends. Now, it's been pointed out to me since you came on our show last 
uh, you had made a pledge that I believe you had made a pledge that you wouldn't take any developer money. Yeah. And then so, we've seen a list of some developer money, what people are calling developer money, a lot of contributions, and some of them definitely do seem like developers. Well, here, here's so here's the here's the thing, and it gets to that what you just said. What seems like developers, these goalposts keep moving. Okay, originally it was people shouldn't take money from developers who are doing business in front of the city. Then it was well, you shouldn't take money from anybody who's a developer. Then it was you shouldn't take money who's a, from anybody who's associated with development whatsoever. Then it was well, you shouldn't take money from even affordable housing developers. Then it was you shouldn't take money from unions. You know, look, I am not anti-development, okay? Now, does that mean that I let developers get away with everything? No. And in fact, you know, I, I know that a former city councilor likes to talk about the Mass and Main project, but he, what he doesn't like to talk about is that at that time, the inclusionary zoning in Cambridge was 11.5%. And Mass and Maine came in, they asked for additional height, and they came in and they said, well, we'll do 12.5%. And I said, no way. They said, you get to 20% before I'm on board. There had never been a 20% inclusionary zoning project done in the city or the entire area. Okay? They came back at 14%. I said, no. They came back at 16%. I said, no. They came back at 17.5%. I said, no. They came back at 20%, and I'm a man of my word, and I said 20% was what I felt was a doable number, and it was the first of its kind project, and then I supported it. Now, people forget that. That cost that developer over, I think the estimate at the time was somewhere around $30 million. Right? You think that developer's happy with me? Now, if I was in the pocket of the developer, why didn't I settle at 14% and say, hey, we got 3%, 2.5% 2, 2 higher than what you know we could have gotten? No, I held them to the highest percentage of inclusionary housing in the metro Boston area. And so, but people forget that. So my motto has always been, I want developers to scream, but not run away. I want to squeeze them for every community benefit I can possibly get. But at the end of the day, I want something to happen. And, you know, when we were looking at raising the inclusionary zoning from 11.5% to 20 there were some people saying, well, let's do, let's, it should be 33% or 40%. I would love it to be 33% or 40%. But the data, the analysis was, if you go above 20, developers can't get the financing that they need to build a project. So what were we really trying to do? Was it to pick a high number so we could pat ourselves on the back that we have the highest number in the country and get no affordable housing? Or was it to find the number that pushed the envelope to the limit but still allowed for affordable housing to be built? And the reality is we're up to 20%. We still haven't had a 20% project yet. So a 30% project or a 40% project clearly wouldn't have worked. So, you know, I'm about action and about getting something done. I'm not about making statements and, you know, uh, symbolic votes. Um, so, you know, yeah, so do I, did I take money? Did I take a contribution for someone who was involved in real estate? Yeah, Okay. You know, I, I lived down the street from a real estate agent who I've known for 25 years in my neighborhood. She's a friend. She happens to be a real estate agent. My, I've never dealt with her as a real estate agent. She's a friend. She donated to my campaign. You know, so I think people can see what they want to see, and there are people who want to see conspiracies around every corner, and there just isn't one here. Um, you know, when City Councilor uh, Clinton came on, uh, Vanderbond, he... Um, brought up that he doesn't take contributions from anyone that has business in front of the city, which is kind of like a defining thing. Would you ever consider that? Well, it depends on what it is, right? So I don't know if that's true. Any business. Well, then you know what? Then go back and look at his OCPF reports and find out if he got any money from a teacher, a Cambridge public school teacher. I don't know if he did, but the city council votes on the Cambridge public school budget. That affects how much money teachers make. So teachers have a vested interest in having people on the on the committee that will support the school committee budget. Do you get money from teachers have business in front of the city? Store owners have business in front of the city. Everybody has business in front of the city at some point. I mean, this is why I support publicly financed elections, to be honest with you, because I don't want to get in the middle of this mess. Right? You know, if we had publicly financed elections, this would be a non issue. Now 
you know, but the reality is, you know, people get upset if you take Councilor Mazin used to get about 80% of his money from outside of Massachusetts, certainly outside of Cambridge. And people got upset with him about that. Well, you're not getting money from Cambridge. You're getting money from outside of Cambridge. So you can't get money from outside of Cambridge. You can't get money from inside of Cambridge. How are you supposed to run a campaign? Okay, fair. I mean, most people I mean, run a campaign without money. I think, uh, you know, I mean, stamps, stamps, stamps aren't getting cheaper. You know, stamps aren't getting cheaper. And, you know, and, 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 and I would say, you know, there was a counselor, the vice mayor, she's not running for re-election this year. And I have a lot of respect for the vice mayor. And, um, you know, we don't always agree on things. We agree on some, but not everything. Nobody agrees on everything. Um, but I think, she's, I think she's a person of incredible integrity. Okay? I really do. Even if I disagree with her, I believe that she, be- that she believes strongly in what she's fighting for, and I respect that. Um, she would get money. She, when she uh, was running, she got money from charter school supporters. Okay? Because she supported charter schools. Now, I put, when the, when the lift the cap question two came up, I put in a resolution saying, asking the Cambridge City Council to go on record against lifting the charter school cap. She voted against my resolution to do that. So she voted pro-charter school, right? Now, do I think she did that because charter school people gave her money? No. I think she did that because she believed in that. And because she supported charter schools, people who also supported charter schools contributed to her campaign. Why do you contribute to Bernie Sanders? You contribute to Bernie Sanders because you like what he stands for, right? But somehow your money is, is, is okay, or my money is okay, but somebody else's money isn't. And this person is going to say, well, the teacher's okay, but, you know, somebody involved with charter school isn't okay. But, you know, somebody involved in this, perf- I mean, you know, who, who's the moral authority here? Right. And so, you know, if, if I was, if, if I was, I've been on the city council six years. If I was running and saying, you know, if I ran the first time and I said, look, I am anti-development. I think development is awful. I don't want to see another, I don't want to see a tree house built in this city. I think it's terrible. And then all of a sudden I got, you know, $5,000 in, in, in campaign contributions from a developer, and I said, oh, you know what, actually, I think development's pretty good. Well, you know what, maybe maybe you can point to something and say, well, gee, why'd you change your position when that money came in? That's not been the case with me. My position has been the same. I'm not against development. I just want to make sure we get the best community benefits we possibly can out of it. And and so, you know, I have I have rejected money from people, developers in Cambridge, um, that people in the community have had, have had issues with. Um, you know, there are some people I have personal relationships with that go far beyond, you know, their professional capacity. But again, in terms of developer money, people who are developers, someone involved in real estate is not necessarily a developer. And, you know, I, I think I've done a, a pretty good job with it. Um, you know, I think it's funny because there are people who are running for office who make no qualms about taking developer money, and they don't get any kind of grief. Um, you know, I'm I'm trying to navigate this funky system that, you know, the goalposts keep changing, you know, all the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm, if I ever took money that I felt, you know, was compromising in some way, I'd give it back and I wouldn't take it in the first place. You know, at, at the end of the day, and I don't mean to sound hokey here, but my family's been in this city for a hundred years in the same house. They're going to carry me out of the city in a box. I have done, my family has done so much to help this city and help this community that if anybody thinks that I would vote for something that I didn't think was good for the city because somebody wrote me a $500 check, you don't know me. And and I have never voted for something that I didn't think was right. And you can believe me or not believe me, that's up to you. But at the end of the day, you know, while, while some people want to sit there and scour OCPF reports to find a gotcha moment, you know what I spend my time doing? I brought free breakfast to every child in the Cambridge Public Schools. I expanded free lunch to over 600 kids whose families earned too much money to qualify for free lunch but not enough money to pay for lunch. I opened the city's first warming center for the homeless. 
I launched the Immigrant Legal Defense Fund to raise $300,000 to support immigrants in our community that are under attack by the Trump administration. I authored the first ever ordinance of its kind to require dedicated bike lanes during major street reconstruction. I, I worked with the city manager to bring the first playground, 100% accessible playground for children with disabilities to the city of Cambridge. So, you know, I've done really good work. I'm proud of the work that I've done. And I have impacted a lot of lives in a positive way. That's why I do this. And so, you know, people can people can look at and get focused on, well, you know, this person, you know, he's the dentist of a developer. Why did he take money from him? You know what? I'm concentrating on doing the work. And I've done it. And so I'm proud of my record. Um, I stand by my record. You know, I, I know Ms. Bell and some others were upset with me about the EMF building. We talked about this the last time I was on the show. Of all the counselors, first of all, we couldn't stop a private real estate sale. That's a private real estate sale. I didn't even know it happened, but even if I did, the government cannot stop someone from selling their private property. Um, but what? I, but I actually arranged a meeting with the new owner of the EMF building, with the tenants of the building at their request. They wanted a meeting, and at first he was unwilling to do that, and I negotiated a meeting so that they could have a conversation. I convinced the new owner to let the city lease the building to save the artist space if the city wanted to lease it. The city manager said no. I then got the tenants extended time and moving expenses. Now, I admit, that's not saving the building. I didn't save their community. I'm, I regret that. I'm sorry about that. But the reality is, no other counselor did anything to help them. And yet, I'm somehow the bad guy. Yeah, yeah man, I'm listening to everything you say. And I, I, one thing I will say for our listeners is, I know how hard you work. But that's you are a worker. You get things done, and uh, no one can deny it. I mean, look, you are talking to me right now. I think it's 9 o'clock at night <laughs> on a Tuesday night. Well, I've been, I've been in meetings at 730 this morning. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, you know, um, and you're always available. So I, I want to change it up and look to just get to some uh, maybe what we call speed round. The first one okay. is carnival. Everyone's asking about carnival. What's up with Mike, carnival? Mike, I'm not good with speed rounds. I don't know. No, I don't say anything. Okay. So here's the deal with Carnival. Okay. So um, there was uh, there were some shootings at the Boston Carnival. Some were associated at the Carnival. Some were not. From what I've been told, there were subsequent. Um, there was it was a gang related shooting. There was some retaliation that happened. Our police commissioner, who is a very thoughtful person, who actually. Last year, there was talk about canceling the carnival last year because the year before there had been a shooting in Cambridge. And he actually went to that and said, no, we're not going to cancel it. We're going to have it. We'll put, we, we brought in every single police officer for the Cambridge Police Department to work that carnival to make sure it was safe. And it was. So he, he's not someone who's against the carnival. But anyway, he got, in, from what I've been told, he got intelligence out of Boston that it was going to be a retaliation in Cambridge. And at our at our carnival, and one of the things that was really disturbing about the shooting that happened two years ago is if you look back at the video, there were I don't, I don't have an exact number, but there were probably a dozen, eight to twelve police officers around the person who pulled out the gun and started shooting. That person didn't care that there were police officers around. So the you could have a thousand police officers on the street, which by the way people would complain about too, right? Because now now you're over policing. Um, but if somebody wants to take out a gun and shoot somebody, they don't care if the police are there. So he had this credible evidence out of Boston that there was going to be a retaliation. He met with the carnival committee and the city manager, and the, those three groups, those three, those two individuals in the group, decided it was better to cancel. Now, I'm often reminded that the, you know that the mayor of Cambridge does not have the same authority as the mayor of Somerville or Boston. If that was a decision made in Somerville or Boston, the mayor would, be, would have been part of that conversation. In Cambridge, I wasn't involved. That bothered me. I should have been involved, and they should have included me in that conversation. But at the end of the day, I wasn't. Now, I met with the Carnival Committee on Tuesday of that week, Monday or Tuesday of that week, and 
We offered the mayor's office support. In fact, we paid for one of the bands to play, and we paid for the award that was going to be given to the, they, they give an award to someone every year. Mayor's office bought that, that award, paid for a band to play, and said, we're going to offer any kind of logistical support we can. So as far as I knew, everything was a go as of Monday night. I get notified on Thursday that there's about to be a press release put out that says the carnival's canceled. So I'm a little bit, you know, I was, wasn't at the meeting, so I can't really comment on everything that was said there because I wasn't there. But from what I had been told subsequently is that they had credible evidence that there was going to be a retaliatory shooting and the police commissioner, you know, and, and, and the others involved didn't feel safe. And it, this wasn't a concern about a general act of violence or anything like that. This was specific information that they had out of Boston. And he said, what am I supposed to do with that? I have this information and I let the carnival go on, and somebody opened fires in a crowd, and now people say to me, you knew this was a possibility, and you let the, you know? I mean, it's a no-win situation, right? And everyone, you know, and everyone is so quick. Well, you know, it's, you know, I, I don't want to sound like an old man, but, you know, this, this, you know, the fact that everything is so instantaneous, you know, I mean, and to get back to the original, you know, if Ms. Bell had, had called me up and said, hey, what's the deal with this? You took money from these people. What the hell? And we had a conversation. Maybe it wouldn't be blasted all over the internet, right? But that's the world we live in now, right? Everybody just puts everything out there. And so, you know, now where I, where I hold the police commissioner and the city manager, where I think they mishandled this, is that in their initial statement, they were not clear that this was due to specific intelligence of an event, right? They sort of made it, it didn't, they didn't give that level of detail. And so people were kind of left to speculate, right? And, and so if they had come out and said, look, we have intelligence out of the Boston gang unit that there's going to be a retaliation on at Cambridge Carnival and we didn't feel that it was safe. I think a lot of people would have said, oh, you know, I'm disappointed, but okay. You know, I kind of get that. But when they come out and say, well, we're just going to cancel it because we're afraid of violence, well, that, that's, that, that sends, that's, not, that, that's harder for people to wrap their head around. Um, and so I think they did a poor job with that, to be quite honest. Um, but that's the reason behind it. And so what we're trying to do, there is going to be a march tomorrow. Uh, gosh, I'm going to get the time wrong. I'll have to text it to you and you can put it out there. Um, uh, to march to City Hall uh, with members of the Caribbean community uh, to sort of gather and talk. And then um, I'm actually reaching out to Nicola Williams, who's the head of the Carnival Committee, and I want to do something um, in the Sullivan Chamber at City Hall. Like I want to do like a lunch, a lunch or some kind of dinner or something to just, if we can't have the parade, we should do something um, because the Caribbean community is an incredible, incredibly important part of the Cambridge community. Um, and uh, they have been for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, and so we need to do something to make this up to them in some way. And, and what the city manager told me is that this is not a cancellation of the carnival in perpetuity. This was based on specific information, and the goal is to have it again next year. Thank so that's, 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 that's the best I can offer you, you know. Perfect, John. Let me go to um, – actually, let me ask you the uh, non-Cambridge question. Yeah. Are there such a thing? Well, the story of the day, you know, it is kind of Cambridge connected because Cambridge okay. police were there, but it's about the Boston, okay. uh, what I'm calling the police riot. And from everything that I've seen, I'm convinced that the police, I mean, there were, there were some incidents. I'm not saying that there weren't some individual incidents and people doing things to the police, but mostly it seemed like one police officer went crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and he's from Boston. And, um, yeah. And one of my, you know, a uh, uh, person I know who's been on the show, he's a, uh, you know, videographer. You know, he, he's someone who's, who's put out some credible, credible, credible movies, credible material. He's a journalist, in my opinion. And he was arrested. And uh, they're, like, raised the bail on him today. Um, they're charging him with two different counts. As far as I saw, every single video, because I, I saw it from his angle, he had the, he had a live video going when they arrested him. 
and there was like three, four different angles of other people that filmed the whole thing, and I didn't see him do anything wrong. And, uh, yeah. and now there's a judge who uh, has police ties, and he's disregarding uh, the district attorney who wants to, to drop the charges. Oh, wow. And uh, they're going to actually file their, their, you know, basically raise the bail. <laughs> they're, they're not going along with what the DA is recommending. Uh, so I'm just wondering if you, you wanted to comment yeah. on any of this yeah. information. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, it seems like nobody is. It seems like no, like Marty Walsh isn't touching it. You know? Hey, you know what? Dude, I comment on everything. You, you you don't always have to like what I say, but I mean I I I'm I'm a pretty transparent person. Um, so I'll say this: we did inquire um, a number of the city councilors, Clinton and myself, and the vice mayor. Um, did inquire with the city manager and the police commissioner about what Cambridge's involvement was. So let me just kind of square that away first. What we were told was that Cambridge provided two tactical officers that were placed on a roof along the parade route. So Cambridge police were not on the ground. They were not marching. They were not involved in any arrests. That's what we've been told. So if people have evidence to the contrary, please let me know. That's what I've been told from the commissioner and the city manager. And there is this agreement, it's, a, you know, between cities that if there's going to be big events or, or things, I mean, we call on the Boston police, you know, at times or, or the state police at times or the Somerville police, just like our fire department goes to Somerville to help if there's a fire. I mean, cities try to work together. So um, there was a request for, for for Cambridge to, you know, to help in this. And, and we provided two officers that were tactical officers on the roof in case something went terribly wrong. But that no Cambridge police officer, from what I was told, was involved in any arrests. Okay, so that's the Cambridge involvement. You know, I will say, so... I worked for half of my career as a social worker, probably more than that, 15 years, I worked in therapeutic schools, mostly with high school students and, and middle school students. And these are schools for uh, kids who have social-emotional challenges, behavioral challenges, and whatnot. And these kids at times would say some really horrible, horrible things to you. They talked about raping my daughter. They talked about, you know, killing my mother. Um, I have had, I've been spit in the face more times than you can count. And at the end of, and at the end of, okay, so you know we own a dog. At the end of, okay, I got you, yeah. So at the end of the day, though, we are the professionals. Right. We are the ones who are responsible for behaving professionally and safely in de-escalating situations. And that's what I hold my police officers to in Cambridge, and that's what I want for every police officer everywhere. The fact is, if you are a police officer and someone is screaming in your face, if they are not putting their hands on you or doing something that you're in fear of your physical safety, then you have to learn how to deal with that discomfort, that anger. You know, I mean, was I thrilled when somebody spit in my face? Of course not. Nobody, that's disgusting. Nobody wants that. But I, my job was to de-escalate that situation or to remove myself from the situation and let someone else handle it if I felt I was getting too hot, right? And so I, I, I think policing was the same thing. If you, you know, what I saw in those videos, and I don't think I've seen as many as, as you have. Like I said, I've, I was just coming out of a, we did a six-hour ordinance committee meeting, and then I went straight to my school committee meeting. So I haven't had a chance to watch a lot of these over the last couple of days, um, but I've, I've watched a couple of them. At the end of the day, it is the responsibility of the professionals to be professional. And so, you know, obviously I wasn't there, but from what I could see in those videos, you know, I, I certainly cannot condone, you know, what happened. And, you know, Boston will, you know, Mayor Walsh will, will make his decision and, and deal with it. I'm not going to tell him how to run a city. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, in, in general, I would just say, you know, police, you know, have to, anybody who's in that kind of professional capacity has to rise above whatever feelings they have. I lived in Cambridge, and my girlfriend lived in Cambridge even longer than I, and we both noticed a difference between, because I lived in Boston as well, and we know, I noticed a difference, and she does too, like the difference between the way the police act 
in the two cities is totally different. It just seems like there's more accountability in Cambridge. It seems like uh, that this wouldn't happen in Cambridge. That uh, you know, it just well, it seems like Boston they get away with a lot more of this crap. And I'm just wondering, do you see any difference on the re- like? I, what is the difference? Yeah, Why? I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, first of all, you know, we compare Boston and Cambridge a lot. Cambridge would be a neighborhood in Boston, right? So we're a lot smaller. I mean, that, and that means something. I mean, there's not a police force isn't as large. There's probably more involvement with the community. Um, you know, I think all of those things sort of make make a difference. So Boston's a really, you know, it's a pretty large, you know, pretty large city with a large larger police force. And at the end of the day, my guess is that, you know, I don't, you know, we can have problems like that in Cambridge too. You know, I, and and so and we've had had problems in Cambridge, right? So, but I think I think the way that it's addressed is different. That's my maybe. It's like yeah. I know that there's issues in Cambridge, but I think that Cambridge they address the issues. They don't hide them. It seems like it seems like there's more opportunity for the public to weigh in and, and be heard. In this case, I've seen thousands of comments, and Mayor Walsh is not reacting. The city council barely is reacting. It's it's just a weird situation. I've never seen anything like it before, where this stuff has gone viral, and yeah. they're acting like it hasn't. They're acting like, and, and the media is not really picking up on it either. It's weird. It's a really weird yeah. thing going on here. Yeah, I don't know. You know, and, and again, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not the mayor of Boston. I, I don't know, you know, how that city runs intimately. Um, you know, so I can't really comment on on what is or isn't happening there. But I do think, in in, in general, I mean, I, I think. And, and we see this across the country, right? I mean, you know, I have great. I, I I know that there's been some comments on on Facebook that you know all police are awful and this that and the other thing. I don't believe that. I think I, I think it, I think it's like every profession, right? There are good ones and bad ones. You know, now obviously as a police officer, when you have more authority and you have a weapon and you have you know more power, you have a higher burden and a higher responsibility to. Um, maintain your composure, right? Because you could kill somebody and it happens. And so I'm not letting anybody off the hook. Um, and every community can have, I mean, it could happen here too. It could, ha- it could happen anywhere. But I think you're right. The question is then, well, how does a community, how does a community respond and, and, and deal with it, right? And um, so, you know, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. All, all, all I can say is that, uh, that, um, you know, I think it's incumbent upon police everywhere um, to get training in community policing, to get training in de-escalation, to get training in conflict resolution. Um, our police commissioner talks all the time when he speaks. One of the things he always says is being a police officer in Cambridge isn't about how many arrests you make, but it's about how many people you help. And that mentality from the top, you know, is, is important. And so... You know, so I can only speak for Cambridge, but that's what our police commissioner tries to in, instill. Um, and you know, again, sometimes we have issues too. Um, but you know, that from what I saw in that video, you know, I, I just, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't condone that if that had happened in Cambridge. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I, I want to ask you a cannabis question. Yeah, you're right. It's like usually where we start is we're ending <laughs> this time because we had so much other stuff to get to. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, Grant Smith is saying, you know, one of the companies in Cambridge is going to make $90 million in revenue next year, according to the Boston Globe. And he's asking, I, I think that that is not the dispensary that's in Cambridge. I think that's their whole company. Yeah, their whole I mean, operation. Their whole operation. Like, I, don't think they, I don't think the Cambridge dispensary is. No, not in Cambridge, but, yeah, I think it's the whole yeah. operation. But, you know, he's basically asking uh, whether you think that there should be a dedicated levy on the yearly 6% of local tax on retail cannabis dispensers in Cambridge, which should go towards the empowerment equity fund yeah. and perpetuity. Yeah. So, um, yes, um, I'm, I'm for the 6%. Uh, so the 3% is automatic, and then I'm for adding another 3%. I'm not sure the whole 6% should go to EE applicants. I'd like to see some of that go to funding affordable housing and other ways to address equity and 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 economic and social justice in our in, in our community um but certainly some um you know we have um and there was some comments on there about asking him why he's supporting r and b s I haven't come out in any position yet for the record 
Okay. There's a there's an amendment filed by Councillor Simmons and there's an amendment filed by Councillor Siddiqui and Councillor Zonderman. My name's not on either one of those. What I'm trying to figure out, and this is why I was kinda of, I wanted to ask you, because you know so much about this. Where I am struggling is I want a system that is going to be the best sustainable support for EE applicants. And so here's my concern. We have two things in front of us right now. We have a two-year moratorium or we have the, having the RMDs contribute a million dollars each to this fund, which would amount to $5 million, and that money would go to EE applicants um, as grants. Like they wouldn't have to pay it back. There's no interest or whatever. So on one hand, I'm saying, okay, I get why the two years is attractive. However, when you look at where people are in the process, no EE applicant is ready to open in Cambridge tomorrow. They're probably 12 to, 16, 12 to 18 months away. By the time they get their location built out, by the time they go through the rest of the process with the state, by the time they go through the planning board, deal with um, neighborhood opposition, Cambridge voted for recreational marijuana at over 70%. Wait till you try to open one in the neighborhood. You think 70% of the people are going to support it? No. They're all going to say, I supported it, but build it somewhere else. So there's going to be a long process of, of community involvement. So it's probably about 12 to 18 months before an EE applicant can even open their door. So we're not going to get too many EE applicants that are going to open during that two-year moratorium. So if you're the person who, who wants, if you're the EE applicant who wants to open in two and a half years or three years, you don't get any benefit from the two-year moratorium. Right, the two-year moratorium ends, and then everybody who's after the two-year moratorium is just on their own. Now, if we have a fund, and I would like to say, not only do they contribute the million dollars up front, but I'd like to see them add either another million every year. So you're talking about five million dollars a year. Um, so that fund keeps regenerating itself. Um, but now, an E applicant four years down the road can access money that isn't otherwise available to them. So I mean, I'm just struggling as which is the best thing. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, and the EE applicants in Cambridge are split. Some of them come up and say, hey, I'm an EE applicant who wants to open in Cambridge and I really need access to the money. Others come up and say, I want the two-year moratorium. So there isn't any agreement among the EE applicants themselves as to which is better. So I haven't, I don't know. I mean, I'm really trying to figure this out. And I have concerns on both sides, you know. Um, I don't want RMDs to just, I don't buy that they're going to go out of business. They're making a lot of money. I, I don't, you know, they're going to be they're going to be fine. But I want to make sure that we're helping EE applicants in the long term. And I don't, what happens when that two-year moratorium expires? And we have one, we have one EE applicant open. What happens to everybody else? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a couple different concerns from people that I hear, like you, but, I think one of the, you've already kind of nailed it down in a way because when you're talking about what Grant said and what you said and you put them together, people want that money and, you know, not just a one-time thing. They want to see the money there two or three, four years if they, you know, when other people open too. Um, but the other concern that people have is that the big dispensaries lock it down. They feel like mm -hmm. that they'll shut them out of the neighborhoods if they get to open first. That, that's what people yeah. are. Well, but I think here, the money situation makes a big difference. I really do. I think that, yeah. that uh, a lot of people felt like they were being lowballed. I think that yeah. a lot of people in the opposition, you know, that didn't want to see this, you know, they, they felt like it was not enough for to give up the two years. So yeah. Yeah. I think when you start talking about other ways to get the money longer term, I think you're going to convince more people. Yeah. You know, I can't speak for them all, but just from what I hear, I think that people want the money long term and to have more money. Yeah, I mean the other the the other part of this um, is, you know, this is this is new territory for everybody, right? We're not going to get it perfect, and we have to be willing to go back and look and reassess. Um, and what I'm worried about is this has taken so long. I mean, we've had so many meetings specific. We didn't. Some people have said, well, you don't really care about EE applicants. If we didn't care about EE applicants, this would be done already. The only reason this is happening is because we're trying to figure out how best to help. Sure. applicants. Um, and we're dealing with, we're having conversations that nobody else is having, not even at the state level. So this is not, you know, this is not, it's not like we have a template to follow, right? So 
you know, I'm sure we'll get some things right and we'll get some things wrong, but you have people that are paying rent eight, ten thousand dollars a month on property that they can't start working on because we're taking such a long time trying to figure this out. That's not helping them either, right? right. So at some point we got to just say, look, you know, we're going to make the best. We're going to make the best decision we can, and we're going to see, you know, see what happens. But here's something that doesn't get talked about enough, and I, I want to make sure you know this. When when we were doing the medical marijuana zoning, and I was a big supporter of medical marijuana, um, I helped write the zoning for it. Um, and one of the things I did though was people were concerned about the number of medical RMDs that could open in the city. I, I personally was a little less concerned about that, I, I, you know. But again, we weren't going to get the votes, and and I had to figure out a way to make people feel more comfortable. So what we did was. We said that RMDs cannot open within 1,800 feet of each other, so we created these buffer zones, which artificially limits the number of RMDs that can exist in Cambridge because there's only so many spaces they can they can go. Because when you when you figure in, they have to be you know 500 feet from schools and from parks and the 1,800 feet. It really means that we can have about six or seven RMDs in the city. When we wrote the zoning for adult use recreational. I put in an amendment that said EE applicants only, not every adult use, but only EE applicants are exempt from the buffer zones. They can open wherever the hell they want. That's great. And so what's going to happen is RMDs are going to max out. We're going to, we can't have more than six or seven, but yeah. EE applicants can open as many as the city will allow. So that is an advantage that at the end of the day, you're going to see far more EE applicants if they choose to open in Cambridge because they don't have the zoning restrictions that other adult use establishments will have and R&Ds will have. EE applicants are the only ones that are exempt from that. And I did that purposely, right? So people aren't talking about that enough because the zoning passed a long time ago, but I want people to remember that because that's going to be a huge advantage to them. So they're not. So if an R&D opens or an R&D on, you know, CIRA, on Mass Ave starts doing adult use, an EE applicant can open right next to us. That's awesome. Right? That's, so that's, great. that's a huge benefit that, that I don't I think gets missed in this conversation. And that was an well, amendment that, that I put in. Something that people need to be aware of. I wasn't aware of that. Which yeah. is, that that's, uh, totally changes the conversation where we talk about them taking all the spots. Because that, right. That's like, it, it, it won't happen. That's why yeah. there's a protection. Uh, for that. So, you know, I mean, we're, we're trying. I mean, you know, we're trying to figure this out as best we can. There's different opinions on all sides. People need different things, want different things. You know, I want to help EE applicants, you know, for the long term. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're somebody, I mean, it's going to be legal to start doing deliveries, right? We're not even just talking storefronts. If you're an EE applicant that wants to start doing deliveries and you need money for, you know, buy three or four cars, you know, or, or or whatever, a two-year moratorium doesn't mean anything to you. You need capital. So, you know, so it, it's, it cuts both ways, you know. That's great. I'm, uh, I'm more optimistic about it now. Talk to you on that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully other people will feel the same way because yeah. I think we need to move on. It needs, yeah. it needs to get done. And uh, yeah. it's good to hear that it, it does sound like it, it is possible. And we have to be... You know, we're in such where everyone is so on edge, I think, because of the racist, awful human being that is, that is occupying the White House right now. That, oh, did I say that out loud? Is that I don't know. I'm going to get audited now. All right. Um, believe me, I mean, no, I have not hidden my feelings about that man. Um, I hesitantly called him a man. I don't think they can um, do that, though. That's <laughs> true. Um, especially he's got you know he's got nobody working for him anymore. Um, but anyway, um, you know I think everybody is so on edge and there's so much happening that sometimes we forget to just kind of step back a minute, take a breath. Let's look at this. You know, let's think about this issue from a number of different angles, and let's try to have a conversation about how to move things forward. Everyone is so entrenched with labels, who's more, you know, we get into the, every election, we get into the progressive Olympics in in Cambridge. Who's more progressive, 
what, what the hell does that even mean? Who defines that, right? I mean, there are people who, I didn't get endorsed by our revolution this year because, you know, they had some standards that they set that I didn't meet. But if you ask the hundreds and hundreds of people that I have helped over my 25-year career lead better lives because of my commitment to social work and social justice, they consider me pretty progressive. You know, you look at my record, it's pretty progressive. Um, but, you, you know, economic empowerment through the bed zoning is pretty progressive. Yeah. Like, I mean, because the, the, I think in another city or town that's doing it. I mean, maybe no. Somerville does it. I, no, you know, nobody else, nobody else does it. I, no. I thought, I, I wrote the first, I just, I just, I, I wrote the first ordinance. I, I brought the ACLU, the police department in the city together to pass a first of its kind surveillance ordinance in the city. It's, it's, the, it's one of the first of, its, first of its kind in the country. I just filed a, a, a policy order that's coming up at the September 9th meeting to ban facial recognition. I mean, I, I, I removed the state flag from the Sullivan Chamber because of its depiction of, of being violent towards Native Americans. I changed Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. I mean, these are all things that are pretty progressive. I've taken, believe me, I've taken a lot of heat from people yeah. who aren't as progressive, right? Well, let me ask you yeah. one more. I, I said I was going to ask you one more question, but I have one more. Okay. Because you have been one of the things, the issue, one of the issues that's hot right now, I think, and, and it means a lot to me personally, is the safe injection sites. Yes. I've had friends die alone. You know, yep. they shouldn't have been alone. Um, yes. And so safe injection sites, you've been a leader on it. We've talked about it. Uh, since then, Somerville has come out, you know, saying that they're going to go forward with it, which yep. is, you know, a, kind of a news. Uh, you've been talking to Marty Walsh about it. You've been, you know, traveling, going to see some safe injection sites. Where do you think Cambridge is now? Like, is Cambridge going to move forward with it or discuss it because Somerville is now? Yeah, I mean, we, we so we are discussing it. I, I will say this, that, that when I, I, I wrote a report when I was vice mayor, so last term, uh, on the opioid crisis in Cambridge, and I made a series of recommendations, uh, including for us to open a, a safe injection site. Well, safe consumption site, because sometimes you don't inject; it's, you, you consume different ways. Um, and so, it, that that recommendation kind of fell flat um, with the city manager and the, our director of public health, and then. We scheduled, I got appointed to the Harm Reduction Commission at the state level. I wanted to take this trip to Montreal. We took members. I had, I had also recommended we form an opioid uh, task force to, to further evaluate this, which the city manager did. So I took the, two, the police commissioner, who was a co-chair, and our director of public health, who was the other co-chair, and then two doctors that were uh, from the health, uh, Cambridge Health Alliance. We all went, they came with me to Montreal. And when we came back, there was a shift. And now the city is, um, you know, they haven't taken quite the step that Somerville has taken, but we're much closer. Um, you know, this is one of those times, as I said earlier, I wish I had the authority that, that Mayor Curtitoni has um, because I would be right along with him. This is a decision that, unfortunately, the mayor doesn't get to make on his own in Cambridge. So I am, I am continuing to advocate strongly with the city manager. I really think this needs to be a regional thing. I think Boston needs to do it. Cambridge needs to do it. Revere's mayor has shown interest in doing it. Worcester's mayor, uh, or I'm sorry, Worcester's public health uh, uh, person was on the, the, the harm reduction commission and she was supportive. So, you know, you are absolutely right. I mean, people, this is about saving lives, right? So it's not about condoning, condoning anything or, you know, I have friends who's um, a homeless guy, grew up in Cambridge. I, I didn't know him from growing up, but I knew him from, he was out in front of the 7-Eleven near my house every day. And we struck up a friendship, really wonderful guy. And, you know, battled with his issues. And um, I had been trying to get him housing and he would get close and then stumble and get close and then stumble. And so finally I saw him. I didn't see him for a couple of days and I started to get worried. And then I saw him and he was, you know, in, looked in good shape. And he said, look, I, I've been in detox. I've been, I'm, I'm clean. He went on being clean for several months. We got him housing. Um, he was able, once he was clean, he was able to sort of do all the paperwork he needed to do and show up for the appointments he needed to show up for. He got housing. Um, and he relapsed and overdosed and died two days after 
I saw him and I said, and he was saying, I, I'm, I'm, he relapsed. And he said, I need some help. Can you help me get into a program? I said, look, come see me tomorrow. I'll help you get into a program. He didn't come. He didn't show up, which I wasn't totally surprised. But then I found out the next day he didn't show up because he had OD'd the night before alone in, in the house that I, in the apartment that I helped him get. And, you know, if there was a safe consumption site, maybe he'd be alive today. And I, and I know his daughter and his granddaughter and, um, you know, I mean, he was a guy. I do this thing. Oh, I did this on your show. Anybody who's listening, raise your hand if you've ever asked a kid what they want to be when they grow up. And everybody raises their hand. And I say, now tell me how many of those kids said homeless or an addict. Right? These are people. These people we see on the street, whether they're dealing with substance use disorder or homelessness or both, um, it's somebody's kid. So they were 10 years old once and didn't want this for themselves. And until we start being compassionate and understanding that and seeing these folks as human beings that have an illness that deserve our attention and our support, we're not going to get safe consumption sites because people just get too, you know, oh, that's crazy. Uh, no, it's not crazy. The evidence is clear. No one has ever died from an overdose in a safe consumption site. No one. Zero. You can't get into treatment if you're dead. We need to keep people alive. And I I am I thank Mayor Curtatoni for putting that out there and saying we don't care what the feds say, we're gonna do this. Um and I'm hoping that we that we follow suit. Um it's too important. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mayor. Every day, Their Life's here to help you live a higher quality of life. The massive product selection at their Wareham dispensary features superior quality flour, vapes, edibles, and more, all derived from locally sourced growers. Experience unparalleled customer service from experts whose knowledge will help you become smarter about your options. Located 10 minutes from the Bourne Bridge, make Verilife Wareham your last stop on the way to the Cape. Reserve an order through Leafly and you'll be on your way in no time. Open seven days a week from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. The good vibes start at Verilife.